0: 20 years ago this year, the main feature article of Time Magazine, June 1991, was headed, evil. Does it exist? Or did just bad things happen? Just over 10 years later than that, in September 2001, as the journalists struggled to find words to describe the carnage of the Twin Towers collapsing, There was no other word that they could find for it than to declare this is evil. But you can't use the word evil without introducing the language of God. And as soon as you introduce God into the conversation, you'll raise what is is often called the problem of evil. For if the world is not just an accident, if there are actions of men that are deemed to be evil and others righteous then there is something more to life than just living. And the answers of the age, of course, is yes, there is. There is the God who has created life. But if the answer is God, then the theoretical problem of evil will be asked. It's usually expressed in terms like God is all-powerful, God is all-good, terrible things happen. If he's all-powerful, why doesn't he stop them? If he's all-good, why doesn't he stop them? So is there an all-powerful, all-good God if terrible things happen? This is the toy of 18-year-olds doing their first-year degrees in arts and studying philosophy. Those who haven't been around for very long and haven't yet experienced very much evil in their life. The question has been around for ages and it has been unsolved and is insoluble to those who do not know God and will not listen to His word. But you can get a good mark in your philosophy class if you want to. Those who do not fear God will never actually get the answer to this question. And the problem with the problem of evil is that it's not, of course, a theoretical game. Once you get beyond 18 and first year university, you discover it's a very practical and real game because the issues in the lives of people in this world, terrible things, do happen. And there's just been an earthquake in Turkey, at least a thousand killed. And there's been the revolution in Libya with thousands, who knows how many killed. And evil always seems to be on the ascendancy in the news broadcast every night of the week. And it's not just overseas and in the lives of other people, there is the evil within our own world, in our own sickness, in our own children causing us grief or in our own business failing or being passed over by somebody not as able as ourselves because they could play the games of politics in the office better than we could or there's the corruption in our government or it's my problem and it's your problem, it's it's his problem, it's her problem. It's the practical problems of dealing with life from day to day, our own sinfulness, the sinfulness of others, the evil of a world gone amuck. And again, it's the Bible that brings us light by which we can see the problem. Firstly, in the historical perspective of the history of Israel, in God dealing with his people, explained by the prophets and today explained by Malachi in chapter 3 of Malachi and the last verse of chapter 2 which really should be in chapter 3 on page 969 of our Bibles. For after the Babylonian captivity the people returned back to Judah to rebuild, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple on top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, to rebuild the kingdom of God where God's people would be living in God's, as God's nation in God's promised land. But all things failed. Their hopes, their aspirations were dashed, dashed on the rocks of reality. The seasons failed and so the crops failed. Poverty came upon them and injustice and corruption seemed to reign in Judah. So the people of Judah were wearying the Lord with their questions, with their complaints, with their arguments, their accusations and their dissatisfactions. They wearied him by saying in chapter 2 verse 17 that God, well, God's blessing the evildoers and so God is not just. They'd lost all distinction between the righteous and the wicked and so our passage starts for us today on 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words but you say how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or by asking Where is the God of justice? Here is the problem of evil. It's as old as Malachi and in fact it goes a long way back before Malachi if that be the case. It's on the lips of the ungodly for that's where it always is. It's often those who do not believe in God and his justice who are loudest in proclaiming that there is a problem of evil and who raise these questions. They wish to complain about the seeming victory of the ungodly. And we at times can feel that complaint when evil seems to reign and corruption seems to get away with it. And again, we see them wearying the Lord in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, over the page it is. For there we read, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts, but you say... How shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes? Here it is again. God challenging them, but they say, but you ask, but you say. They want to argue all the time like teenagers challenging their parents' authority. So they keep answering back God in the book of Malachi. God challenges them about turning away from him and calls upon them to return, but they say, well, how shall we return? As if to say, well, what's wrong with us? Why do we need to turn back? What do we have to change? Why are we needing this challenge? So God replies, no, you have done wrong. You've robbed me. And they ask him, well, hang on, when have we robbed you? We haven't mugged you going down the back streets of Jerusalem lately. When have we robbed you? Who, me? Never. I wouldn't do such a thing. It's like one of those massive, ugly rugby forwards when the referee blows the whistle for an infringement and they, sitting on the ground, look up with a face full of the innocence of a chorister, saying, who? Me, sir? No, it wasn't me. That couldn't have been me. I don't do that kind of thing. There's something profoundly incongruous with a second row forward claiming to be innocent or even a prop forward claiming innocence rob you God when would I have robbed you that's not I wouldn't have ever done such a thing and God reminds them he reminds them of their tithes that they're not paying or again you can see them wearying God when he challenges them in verse 13 about saying hard things against God and yet you ask yet you say well have we spoken against you when did we speak against you what would I have ever said against you And so in verse 14, God reminds them, you have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? It's the charge that's there at chapter 2, verse 17. So there's no profit in being godly. God doesn't look after the godly. God doesn't reward the godly or punish the wrongdoer. Rather, evildoers are the blessed ones. So what's the point of serving God? And so, verse 15, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Where is the God of justice? So, Malachi 3 addresses the problem of evil with God's answer in history. And there are three answers given in history through Malachi. The first answer is the coming. Chapter 2, verse 17, where is the God of justice? Well, if you want justice, then in three, chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger to prepare the way of my coming. Suddenly the Lord will come. I will come to my temple and I will seek justice. You delight in the covenant of justice and you want to see justice done? Well, I'm sending the messenger and justice is coming. And who can endure such a coming? For it will be like the refiner's fire, purifying the priests of the temple so that Judah's offerings will be acceptable. And God is going to come. Yes, God is going to come to the temple. Yes, God is going to come to the temple and put it in the furnace. And let's see what comes out at the end of that. And so the first argument is God will come and bring justice, but are you ready for what you're asking for? For when God comes to clean up corruption... He doesn't start over there with the wicked Babylonians or the Persians or whoever, he starts with you. And not just with you, but with the very centre of you, right in the very temple of God in Main Street, Jerusalem. That's where he says, are you ready? Do you really want his justice? Here is an argument that can be put fairly rudely and crudely and very appropriately in first year philosophy classes. For those who want to play with the ideas of God's justice, you want God to clean up the mess of the world that the world is in at the moment? You want him to clean up the greed in the markets? the tyranny in the Middle Eastern states, the bloodshed in Africa, in Congo, and Somalia, in Zimbabwe, you, the invasion of Indonesia in West Papua, the, the indigenous land rights of our own land here, the Australian business and government corruption. You want God to clean up your city, your suburb, your street, your house, your life? You want God to come and clean up you? But God's not going to come and clean up Iraq and Afghanistan and leave you in your present state. Oh, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way and he's going to judge the world starting with his own house and his own people For when he comes to judge he'll do the job properly. Are you really ready for that? The second argument is the robbery. God who is coming to judge is sending his messenger to warn, to call his people, to repent, to return to God but, of course, people always protest they're innocent. Long Bay Jail, I understand, is full of innocent people. Very few who are willing to stand there and say they're guilty. If it's not the way that they were raised, it was their lawyer who got them into there. But they have not done anything wrong. I haven't got anything to repent of. I mean, what's wrong with the world? Uh, uh, people like Gaddafi or Pol Pot or Saddam Hussein or, or, or Governor George Bush. Or There's always people out there that we can blame for the mess the world's in, but it's nothing to do with me. It's in Canberra, it's in Macquarie Street, but it's not here. So God charges them with a theft of stealing. Would you call yourself a thief? Thief is a fairly black and white and a clear thing that most people think, I'm not a thief. How are you going with tax avoidance and copyright theft of computer programs or music downloads or pirated videos or there are so many ways of stealing, aren't there, available to us? Well, they were guilty, but they were guilty of stealing from God, stealing the tithes. The tithes were the first 10% of their income that were to be given to God for the temple and for the Levites in the land. At 10%, it was a very simple flat tax. I understand one of the American presidential candidates at the moment is offering a 9% flat tax on everything. This was a 10% flat tax. But it was a commitment of the people of God to God and to his work and to his nation, to his priests and to his world. But then when times got tough, bad rains, poor harvest, low yields, difficulty in trading, who can afford to give away 10%? And so they withheld some or all of their tithes. But it's stealing from God. See, why do you think you're having such bad time? It's because I'm not blessing you, says God. And why should I bless you? You're stealing from me. The rain, the crops, the wealth, the prosperity, it all comes from God. And you hold back from God what is his? So trust me and pay what you should and see if I don't send rain and crops and protection from pests. Look across there at verse 10. Verse 10. Uh, Bring the full tithes. There we go. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you the blessing until there is no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. Put me to the test. You give your 10%, I will give you the 100% from which you'll get the 10% to me. The second answer to the problem of evil is that our present suffering can be the punishment of God in this lifetime for our failure to honour God in this lifetime. Not all suffering is directly related to God punishing us for our sin. But some suffering is, and can be, And the suffering in Malachi's day certainly was. The third answer to Malachi, the third answer of the problem of evil in view of Malachi is the day. It's connected to the first answer really of the coming for the day is coming when God will select his treasured possession, his people who he's saving and he will destroy all evildoers. You see it in 3.17, 3.17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. On the other hand, the judgment's coming in chapter 4, verse 1, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and it will leave them neither root nor branch. In chapter 3, verse 16, we see some people who feared the Lord. They were not those who refused to repent. They were not those who would withhold the tithe. They feared the Lord and they met together and talked it over. And their names, we're told, are written in God's book. It's not a book of good doers, it's a book of God fearers. And they are the ones who are going to be spared. They are the ones that God is selecting and collecting up as his treasured possession in this world. And extraordinarily, they will gain clear insight into the difference between right and wrong. The difference of right, namely serving the Lord, and wrong, namely not serving him. You see it there at the end of our passage today, verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Back in 1991, when Time ran its article about evil, it was followed up in the next week, of course, with letters. Letters that said, there is no evil. There is no right. There is no wrong. Everything is just a matter of opinion. So Neil Murray from England wrote, Let's do away with the mysticism and superstition of the past and be brave enough to recognise that evil is a term applied to behaviour or events that are socially unacceptable. Some cultures will view an eclipse of the moon as evil and find murder in certain circumstances can be justifiable. Other cultures may justify the eclipse but call the murder an evil deed. Society and culture change. And therefore evil will change. There is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no evil. There's just things that you approve of and things that you don't approve of. Or Sam Turner also from England wrote, good and evil are purely subjective. What we experience is either pleasant or, or unpleasant to a degree. As I said, God doesn't exist Hitler was a paranoid schizophrenic with political ambitions, AIDS is a disease, and Saddam Hussein is a calm, intelligent man and a gangster. Well, there is a view of life, isn't it? We explain Hitler psychiatrically, though his doctors assured us that that actually wasn't his problem, and we put Sudan Hussein as a calm, intelligent man and a gangster. Because, you see, as an atheist, there is no good. There is no evil. It's just a matter of opinion. Or from Scotland, the concept of evil is the most striking feature in a tapestry of nonsense woven by religions, political ideologues and other agents of supermorality, wrote Andrew Macon. Earlier this year, uh, I wrote an article called an atheist's conversion. I think we've been giving that today already for you. Not that I want you to look at it now. To be careful. I know the temptation. It's for you to take home and to read, not even at the office, except if there's a coffee break. Uh, you can download these kind of articles from philipjensen.com. I produce one each week. But this one was on an atheist philosopher, Professor Joel Marx, who had spent a lifetime. Arguing for morality, arguing against utilitarians, arguing for morality without God because he was an atheist. But he has come to admit a year or so ago now, last year it was, that he was wrong. Without God, there's no morality. And so he accepted amorality, that is, life without morals. He writes, My shocking epiphany that the religious fundamentalists are correct. Without God, there is no morality. Very hard to run ethics clauses in our in our in our public schools when there is no morality. There is no ethics if you don't have God. They may as well go back to scripture classes. Anyway, he also wrote, "I became convinced that atheism implies amorality, and since I'm an atheist, I must therefore embrace amorality." Shows that though a philosophy. Professor, he's not necessarily a great logician because there was another alternative in that, wasn't there? That is, he could give up being an atheist. He didn't have to give up on morality. There, there was another alternative, which he doesn't seem to countenance as a possibility. See, this is the end point of those who do not fear God. There is neither right nor wrong. It's all just a matter of pitting in. Or as time says, bad things just happen. That's all there is but it is as unrealistic and unlivable nonsense as you can get on with. To say that the barbaric massacres in Mogadishu, the starvation of hundreds of thousands of people fleeing in the Horn of Africa, the stealing of young children in the Congo to become soldiers fighting in a civil war that seems to know no end, to say these things are not evil, they're just things that happen, is to reduce life to that of the cow munching the grass. There is no purpose, there is no meaning, I just live. In the end, the journalists could find no other word than evil when 3,000 citizens were killed in the collapse of the Twin Towers. Malachi looked forward to the day when God's people will once more see the distinction between right and wrong but notice what that distinction is between those who serve the Lord and those who don't but these were Malachi's days and Malachi's answers God's answers in history what of today what what is God's answers for today well there's a mistake in that question for it assumes that God's answers will change over time over seasons and cultures but God's answer spoken through Malachi is God's answer for us it was written for our learning oh there are differences the messenger that he prophesies in chapter 3 verse 1 has now already come he was none other than the person John the Baptist more of him next week and the Lord has come to his temple in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and when he came he cleansed it and he prophesied its destruction and he replaced it with his own perfect sacrifice. And so we don't now bring tithes to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't now provide for the Levites and the nation. But these differences don't change the message. They fulfill the promises. They heighten the time, the point of the, message, the passage, the appropriateness of the answer, the, the challenge of the answers, but they don't change them. For the message remains the same for now there is nothing left but the day of judgment and the message is one of warning. The purification of Judah's sacrifices is over, only the day of judgment is left to come and that has been delayed to provide for us this time to return to the Lord, not only us but all the nations to return to the Lord to repent and still people protest. What do I need to repent of? I've done nothing wrong. I'm not perfect, but then nobody is. So what do I have to repent about? Theft? I'm no thief. I've not stolen from God, but friends, God has given us everything. Life, health, wealth, peace, safety, security. And what have we given in return? What have we given to the Church Missionary Society as it takes the gospel to the farthest corners of the world to bring salvation that God has given to us in the teaching of the Bible? What have we given that others may share in this wonderful news of salvation? What have we given to our own church and our own ministries? Is it no more than the tip, a kind of loose change from our fob pocket or our purse just reach in and pull out and drop in the coins that are there one christmas here we receive 45 dollars worth of five cent coins that's a real commitment to what god has done has not it he sends his son into the world to die for our salvation and we give him some five cent coins Is God the first part of our budget as we plan to do with what our resources? Do we recognise that it actually is his money that he's entrusted to us or do we still think that it's our money that we may give to him if we've got something spare at the end of the day, some leftover we might provided we don't need it for a rainy day? Life is still the same. Those who fear the Lord... Gather week by week to talk with each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. Well done, here we are, middle of the day, middle of the week, gathering yet to hear God's word. This is the passage that the author of Hebrews, I think, was referring to when he wrote in chapter 10. And let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing nigh. That's what church is about. Gathering together with God's people, those who fear the Lord, to encourage each other in what is right and to encourage each other to avoid that which is wrong. If you think that the world is rotten, that God has lost control, that there's no good, no evil, that If there is evil, then it's not good God blesses the evil because the wicked seem to prosper. Then think again, repent and consider because God's day is coming when he will put justice into this world as is shown by his son's death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for John the Baptist preparing the way for his coming. We thank you that he indeed did come and cleanse your temple and destroy it to raise up in three days the new and living temple whereby we can come into your presence cleansed and purified to live in fear of you and in joy in our salvation. We thank you that we can gather together with other Christians and talk with one another and encourage one another. We pray for the different churches that are represented here this day, that this coming weekend might be another time of rich fellowship when we hear your word and we encourage each other to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong, between serving you and failing to serve you. And we pray that we may go on stirring each other up to love and good works, and all the more as we see your day approaching. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.